Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Central Library. On behalf of Pratt Library CEO Carla Hayden, the Board of Directors and Trustees, I'd like to welcome you all to a special edition of our Writers Live series. I'm Kate Powell. I'm a board member and a trustee here at the Pratt. And tonight, we are going to engage in a, a really important discussion on a topic that I think we're all um, invested in and one that has certainly touched us all education. Um, the Pratt obviously has a vested interest in our children's education. Uh, we have a relationship with the Baltimore City school system that has dated back to the 1930s, and this bond has really only been strengthened through the years by the remarkable work of the Pratt staff members. The Pratt's Office of School and Student Services is dedicated to creating programs that teens, children, students, and educators for them, and also, this is a fact, fun fact that I bet not everyone knows, this central library and a lot of our neighborhood branches serve as the uh, school, official school libraries of many of our, of our city schools. So tonight, we're honored to have with us author Jacqueline Edelberg to discuss her wonderful book, How to Walk to School, Blueprint for a Neighborhood School Renaissance. And I know that you're very anxious to hear from her, but first we'd like to thank our incredible partners that made this evening possible, the Goldsecker Foundation, Healthy Neighborhoods, and the Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance. Um, and to introduce our special guest here tonight is President and CEO of the Goldsecker Foundation, Tim Armbruster. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for coming out. We're very excited about doing this. The Goldsecker Foundation, for more than 25 years, has been investing a lot of, a lot of money and uh, a lot of effort in finding ways to strengthen um, Baltimore's neighborhoods. And one of the great frustrations we've always had was that in many of the neighborhoods in Baltimore, the public schools have traditionally, historically been um, shall we say, somewhat less than excellent in most, in most cases. And yet, at the same time, what was especially frustrating is that all of us are aware that without strong, academically strong public schools, it's impossible over the long haul to sustain stronger neighborhoods. And it's probably even harder to improve ones that are less strong. Now, happily, in the past several years, has brought a lot of renewed energy and interest and uh, willingness to experiment and try new approaches, um, encourage and adopt um, new ideas. Now, obviously, a lot of the change in that culture in and around North Avenue has to do with Andres Alonso. But just as important, is the work that a lot of you are doing, the people in this room are doing, in their neighborhoods and with their schools. There's a whole new, there's a whole new sense of energy and, uh, and possibility that uh, we're especially pleased to see. Now, a few months ago, my colleague, Lori Latuda, and if you don't know her, you should, um, she's the Goldsecker Foundation's program officer. So she introduced me to this book, that book. And as you see, it's entitled How to Walk to School, a Blueprint for Neighborhood School Renaissance. 
Not only should you read it, you don't have to take my word for it. The Library Journal says that every teacher in the United States should read this, and every parent in the United States should read this book. Uh, you'll notice that Arnie Duncan, the U.S. Secretary of Education, did the foreword, and Rahm Emanuel, who, if the courts can figure out whether he lives in Chicago or not, uh, may, soon, may, soon be, uh, may soon be Chicago's, Chicago's mayor. But the, the story here, the powerful story, is how a small group of parents completely turned around a, a persistently underperforming school in their neighborhood. Now, what's especially important about this is it was done with very, very little money. It's not about the money always. In fact, it quite often isn't about the money. In this case, it was about intense commitment and tenacity and a lot of hard work, and it's the kind of school reform that's brought enormous national attention. Uh, if you've been paying attention from Oprah Winfrey and the Wall Street Journal and NPR and CNN and on and on and on. The, the way this is going to work tonight is, so that you don't have to see me again until the very end, is I'm going to introduce uh, two people who are, who are with us. Uh, one, of course, the author, Jacqueline Milberg. Um, but, but our other guest is from Baltimore. We wanted to make sure that we had a local perspective. So to provide some, some local content, uh, after Jacqueline speaks, uh, Shanesha Sauls, a proud graduate of Norfolk, Virginia Public Schools, uh, mother of three, a professor at American University, with a doctorate from Duke University and undergraduate degrees, Phi Beta Kappa with honors from the University of Maryland College Park. Now, I first met her in connection with the Patterson Park Public Charter School, which she was a founding member, founding board member and officer, and also as a board member and officer of the Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance. And what's especially noteworthy is that this past year, she was appointed to the Board of School Commissioners of Baltimore City. Now let me, let me introduce our main speaker and the reason we're here tonight. For the past two days, Jacqueline has been a guest of the, the Goldsacker Foundation, has been meeting with many of you. She did the Roderick Show today, sort of getting a sense of what Baltimore is all about and what the opportunities here are and what advice she would give us. Um, because not only is she the book's co-author, but she's also the principal driver of this turnaround of the Nettle Horse School in Chicago. She's a remarkable, remarkably determined woman. And although we've known each other only briefly, I know that she has, uh, she has a lot to teach us. Jacqueline, in another life, was a Fulbright scholar, taught at a university in Germany, and has undergraduate and doctoral degrees from the University of Chicago. But tonight she comes to us in a slightly different capacity as a mom. Let's welcome her. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so glad everyone braved the blizzard and the snow to come out. <laughs> Because um, yesterday all the schools were closed because of the blizzard. Um, so 
So first, first of all, thank you very much to Pratt and the Goldsecker Foundation and the Healthy Neighborhood Alliance and, um, um, and of course, the Baltimore um, Family Alliance for bringing me out. It's been a real pleasure over the last uh, two days to get a taste of uh, Baltimore, although I'm hoping to get crabs somehow in between now and um, crabs and mussels in between now and uh, when I leave. So I thought what I would do is um, give you a short overview of our experience um, in Chicago, and then um, and then we'll have some more remarks, and and then we'll have a very um, hopefully forthright Q and A. So um, here is the uh, the short story. Um, the short story is my uh, husband was supposed to do all of the research on schools. This was eight years ago. And uh, then he came to me and he told me he was too busy at work and that I was going to have to do all of that. And it was like, oh, man, you cannot drop that in my lap. That is just, you know, that is a huge, huge project. And how big a project is it in in Chicago um, trying to get your kid into an established magnet school um, like Hawthorne? It's statistically easier to get your high school senior into Harvard. And trying to get your kid into a private school is no piece of cake either. Um, I could probably suck it in for both kids if I had to. I'd never eat out again. I'd never go on vacation. Uh, but I, the chance of my getting in are pretty close to nil. And then the other alternative for Chicago parents is moving out uh, to the suburbs. And, um, you know, I would rather eat glass than eat at an olive garden for the rest of my life. So... Um, so faced with those three really poor options, my girlfriend in the park and I decided we should check out Nettlehurst, which was our neighborhood school, to see just how terrible this place was before we panicked, before we went down that uh, private school, magnet school path, or called up realtors, or whatever. So we went in and we spoke to the principal. No one we knew had ever been inside. And she said, what would it take for your kids to come to school here? Um, Because at that point, only about um, seven children from the neighborhood went to school there. And uh, we said, well, that's very interesting. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll let you know. So we came back the next day with this uh, five-page typewritten list of all the things that we thought would have to be in place in order to make a neighborhood move back en masse. And Susan read our list, and she said, well, let's get going, girls. It's going to be a really busy year. Um, So we organized, and we organized in the park, and we put all of these mommies onto teams, and we had infrastructure and PR and curriculum and marketing and enrichment and a special events team, and by our lights, we figured we had nine months to pull it off. Uh, We figured we had nine months because we backed out of when everybody was going to get rejected from uh, private schools and magnet schools. And we knew at that moment Nettlehurst had to be in their panic folder. And if it wasn't their worst, oh, my God, somebody get the keys to the drawer because it's happened folder drawer, we knew that everybody was going to move and all of that energy in the park would be lost, which is not to say that Nettlehurst wouldn't have pulled out Three years down the road, ten years, who knows? It just wasn't going to happen with that group of people. So let me just take you on a quick timeline to sort of put it in perspective of where Nettlehurst was before we walked in the door. 
So 10 years prior to when we walked in the door, Susan Curlin inherited this school. So here's Susan two years. The 10 years before she had been there for the decade, there had been seven different administrators in a decade. And in fact, right before she took Nettlehurst on, the board had assigned two administrators to get the school under control. There was a 50% mobility rate. Test scores were in the 30s. Um, It was 100% minority. It was 100% free and reduced lunch. I think it is safe to say that it really was one of those Morgan Freeman kind of schools. Now, Susan took control. She, like, rode the buses herself. She cleaned house. She got the school on the right track. And the school was making tremendous progress. You know, slow, incremental, but it was clearly tracking in the right direction. She had taken the school now for two years, and they'd already decided to stop busing in kids Um, The school was bussed in from overcrowded schools not to satisfy any racial mandate. It's just that the neighborhood refused to come. So the board, in their infinite wisdom, decided to take kids from elsewhere. So every day, 14 buses pulled up. They dropped off kids from seven different locations. Um, Those children had very little interest in being there. Neither did their parents. But nevertheless, Susan and her local school council felt that the school had made so much progress and had stabilized so much that surely the school had become a school of choice, that it had happened. So there they were, but they thought, gosh, we've made all this progress. How come the neighborhood won't come? Why? We're, we're doing everything right, you know? And the answer is because it's complicated. You can't put a shingle outside that says, Nettlehurst, you know, not so bad, look again, right? It's complicated. So when we walked in the door, Susan saw a tremendous opportunity, and we presented a tremendous opportunity, which is let's work together to turn this school into what we need it to be. So Nettlehurst suffered from some real problems and some perceptual problems. Real problems are actually very, very easy to fix, right? There are ways to finagle books and supplies, paint goes a very, very long way. The perceptual problems, the fact that Nettlehurst was a disaster on stilts, that it was full of gangs and drugs and violence, and it was not a suitable place where anyone who had other options would possibly choose it in a million years, that was going to be a very, very tough nut to crack. And in fact, that took, I would say, about 70% of our efforts was just to convince a neighborhood that it was okay. So what I'd like to do is talk you through how we, how we got there. Um, so we figured we had nine months. After nine months, we had our first open house for the neighborhood. 300 families came, and 78 kids signed up for preschool that day. And in fact, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was our congressman at the time, opened the doors to that open house. So... Um, you know, that was a big, big moment for us. Now, fast forward, we're now eight years into this project. Nettlehurst has some of the highest test scores in the city. Um, it has a really innovative fee-for-service community school model, which we'll talk about. There is not an inch of the school that hasn't been licked by a neighborhood artist. It is fully populated with neighborhood kids. And it really is a very magical, delicious, fabulous place. 
uh, where people move in droves to live in the catchment zones. Uh, Nettlehurst does not have any tracking. It doesn't have any selective enrollment. It doesn't have any gifted program. It is a regular garden variety neighborhood school. We are a fine and performing arts, what's called in Chicago a magnet cluster, which means we could take students from outside the boundary if we had room. But really, it is a garden variety neighborhood school. We were working with really simple, old school stuff. So let me take you through what some of the teams did. Let's start with the first team, with, which was our infrastructure team. We knew that we had to develop some chemistry and fast. Um, Nettlehurst was a, was, is a beautiful red brick building. It is from the turn of the century. It's actually the oldest, if not one of the oldest schools in Chicago. And it's, you know, it's adorable. Um, but uh, it kind of looks like a penitentiary. Um, and all of the signs outside only reinforced that notion. You know, it was like no ball playing, you know, stay away, we hate you, get lost. And so the first thing we did is we made the principal, Susan, take a look and walked her outside the building to see the school the way a prospective parent would see the school. Um, and there are lots of things that are really simple that schools can do. They can raise the shades. They can, God bless you, they can do all kinds of really, really simple stuff to make schools more inviting in the same way you'd make your house more inviting to strangers, like curb appeal stuff. Um, in the first two years of this movement, we had over half a million dollars of goods and services poured into love and affection into this building. None of it was by cash. It was all done by gallon of paint at a time. We asked painters to just take one room and we asked, or one hallway, we'd open the building when it was convenient to them. We were there at 2 in the morning. We'd show up with donuts and coffee and beer and whatever else. They, well, not beer. Uh, <laughs> didn't do that. Um, you know, and, and we were there, and the building was open, and we just started nibbling at it. And then we said to painters, um, take anything you like. You know? And our only requirements, we said, you know, don't, uh, don't make it scary. Don't make it phallic. Don't paint the face of Jesus. Other than that, you know, have at it. Do whatever you want. And so consequently, it became very uh, magical. And I have to tell you, the inspiration for the infrastructure part of the school was the Visionary Arts Museum here in Baltimore. Uh, my parents moved to Baltimore for a short period while I was in graduate school and into the beginning of this project. They lived here. And... While we were sort of in the park figuring out what we were going to do, I walked into the Visionary Arts Museum for the first time, and I was so blown away by this magical, kookadoo, spectacular environment. And the thought was, gosh, if all these people can do this with nothing, if they can make magic out of nothing, surely we can do that too, right? And in fact, I was just there, um, uh, two days ago when I arrived, it was the first place I stopped, and I was talking to Rebecca um, about the possibility, what if every painter in Chicago, every artist, was allowed to paint um, the front door of a, of a Baltimore school? And every door became this like magical, welcoming thing, just as the first stab. Wouldn't that be you know, a, cool, a cool way to start? 
Um, there's a new show now. Um, Cheryl Hines has a, a new show called School Pride that just aired on NBC. And basically, it's a uh, civic-minded vaudeville uh, version of, you know, um, you know, any one of those makeover shows. And a whole team shows up with caravans, and they redo a school in 10 days, and there's tears and drama and a big reveal. And it's a great show, and it's very inspiring. I hope the takeaway from what we've done from the infrastructure is that we don't need to wait for a caravan of trucks and television cameras um, to show up, to Twitter about it, that this is well within our scope of things that we can do, and it's just paint. And there is no reason on earth why um, every school in America should not be a delicious, magical place. So um, the second team uh, was our um, support team, our, in- our enrichment team. So we needed to develop partnerships. We knew we couldn't do this kind of work by ourselves. We had to get our neighborhood involved. And, and what was the market difference between our movement and others is rather than just targeting the families at the school, we convinced an entire neighborhood to wrap its arms around the school. So the first thing we did is we went out and we made friends with our politicians. Um, and, you know, it's Chicago, but Chicago works the way most urban cities work. And, um, you know, we knew that from our local alderman and our state rep and everybody else that they wanted these schools to succeed, too. I have to tell you, the first time I walked in and talked to the alderman, who's no longer our alderman, he laughed in my face. I mean, he's, what he said, quite simply, is, I have been trying to fix this school for 20 years. It is unfixable. There is a school down the street that is better suited for you and your child. Um, but, you know, kid, if you think you guys can do it, you know, you just let me know what I can do, and I will help you any way I can. Um, and we said, thank you. We'll, when we figure it out, we'll let you know. And the reality is, is if politicians knew how to fix schools, they would be fixed. Uh, most movements derail because people walk in and start shouting at their politicians to fix it. You know, fix it. Well, they don't know how to fix it. What they do know is if you can present what you need in a credible way with concrete things, we are going after X. We would like you to make some phone calls. We would like you to help forge some relationships for us. And this is what we need, and we can clearly articulate it. And this is the kind of specific help we need. That's something that your local representatives can do and want to do because they want your school to succeed too. We also made friends with the Chamber of Commerce. And now all the community events in the neighborhood take place at the school in the front play lot. So little bunny egg hunts and Halloween hooplas and pet fests and all that stuff, that takes place at the school. What we were trying to do is bring a neighborhood in and some vitality into that corner. We also started a farmer's market. Uh, We started a farmer's market with Bensidon USA. Uh, They run all the markets in Paris. We were their first Chicago market. And the reason why we brought a farmer's market in is, of course, every neighborhood needs food, and uh, farmer's markets are great, great assets to neighborhoods. Um, But we also wanted to put going to and Nettlehurst in the same sentence, which hadn't happened in 20 years. So it would be a way to bring a community every Saturday onto our front play lot in a way that was kind of like a fabled town square. But the most important support 
system that we brought in was we became a community school. Um, the Community Schools Initiative is a um, great big national movement. We had never heard of it, uh, but we did come up with an idea before this grant ever existed. And the idea was we thought, let's go around, we'll ask all the people who are the best in the city at what they did to come in and teach their craft at the school. So we went to the local ballet place and the local theater place and all the kind of things, the normal stuff that your kids would be doing in the afternoon that you would have had to leave work to take your kid to a violin lesson across town. We said to the violin guy, how about you come and teach at Nettlehurst in the afternoon? So instead of casting 700 kids out into the universe, which makes no sense, we brought just 50 instructors from all over the city into the school and they come in, they teach their craft as fee-for-service providers. And we only asked for two things. One, everybody had to offer scholarships, which they did anyhow because they're decent, do-gooding people. And then they also had to contribute to the regular curriculum day, some nominal amount. So here where you had minimal art, theater, dance, music, now we had more than we ever could have dreamed of. It was at no cost to the taxpayer, virtually no cost to CPS. We just needed one resource coordinator to run it because you can't run a community center just based on mommy power. And we asked Jane Adams Hullhouse to manage this Medusa, and we asked the Jewish Community Center to run a kids' club in the building uh, after school so that we had after school coverage. And it wasn't just open to the kids at Nettlehurst. Now anybody in the neighborhood can come and take ceramics or theater or music or dance or sports or basket weaving or whatever it is at the school. And the other thing that was really great about our community school model is that it created a rubric, a funnel to absorb the goodness of a neighborhood. So let's say a normal community member taught, you know, knew something about jewelry making because that's what they kind of did at night. You know, maybe they did beadwork at night or knitting. But of course they don't have an established hut of knitting. But now they can come into the school as a fee-for-service contract provider. They come in with Whole House's uh, insurance and a TB test and a background test, whatever Whole House does. And now they can come in and teach in the school. And they can charge for it. They can charge a nominal fee. They could do it for free if they wanted to. And then we have a way now for normal people to offer their services because right now people walk by schools and if you're a knitter, why would you think that you could just walk into a school and teach knitting? Like, don't you have to have some kind of certificate or something? Well, no. No, we created a system where anybody who does anything, as long as you're not a serial killer, come on in. Do your, do your thing. Um, so the community school was really, really uh, viable and I think it's the uh, web address is communityschools.org. And anybody can become a community school officially or even just act, act like one. Um, let's talk about the uh, academic team. Um, our, I should tell you in full disclosure, I don't know a shred about early childhood education. Um, I don't even like kids that much. I mean, I like my own kids. Um, but I do know a lot of mommies who do. And so we had a curriculum team on it. They were full of teachers and linguists and psychiatrists and psychologists, people who would actually know what they were looking at, of which I have no idea. You know, most of us have no idea what we're looking at when we're trying to evaluate a school. 
Um, and they went to all the public and private and parochial schools we would have considered. They sat in on all the classes. They videotaped all of the teachers. And after four and a half months of work, research, they came back basically happy, which was really good news. Because had they come back and said, girls, this is fundamentally broken, we likely would have said, I hope your new library works for you. Sorry it didn't work out. (laughs) Wish you the best of luck, but this is not going to work for us, for our kids, because no one was going to sell their kids down the river. At the end of the day, like at school, right? They have to do the school part. The changes that they wanted to see, Susan was willing to do. But the most important thing, like they weren't even writing curriculum. Illinois has that all locked up. They weren't doing any of that. The most important thing that the curriculum team wanted was a guarantee from Susan, the principal, that we could have a parent in the classroom every single day. And Susan said, sure. We were too green and too naive to know that we were asking for something that is unheard of. But what that did, that access did, and of course, did we have a parent in the classroom every day? No, of course not. But we did have lots of parents roaming the halls, you know, all the time. And... um, you know, we walked into an extraordinarily toxic teaching climate. Um, we had uh, one teacher who had a restraining order for hitting students still in a classroom. Uh, we had a couple teachers who muttered obscenities as they walked down the hallway. Um, you know, there were a lot of good teaching going on at Nettlehurst. There was some great teaching going on at Nettlehurst. But there were also some people, and now that Jeffrey Canada said it, I can say it too, there were some teachers who were like really bad uh, teachers who should not be teaching my kids or anybody else's kids. Uh, But a funny thing happened with this uh, access. With all these pesky parents roaming the halls and peeking into classrooms, a funny thing happened. First of all, Uh, It helped mollify a really skittish uh, prospective population that somebody was minding the store. Um, You know, I might not be in my kid's classroom because that might get weird, but you might be in my kid's classroom, and then I might be in your kid's classroom. And theoretically, the thought was, well, if Diane's there, like, how bad could that be? You know, somebody's on it, right? But the other thing happened, and it happened far more quickly than we ever could have anticipated, And that was, I think the PC way to put it, is within the first two years of this movement, every single teacher who did not share our educational vision have since found suitable accommodation elsewhere. I think it was the something about like just turning the lights on, um, which was no more complicated than if somebody told you your house uh, was on the market and it had to be clean. I suspect it would be just a tiny bit cleaner every single day just in anticipation, you know, like you never know who's popping in. And it really did change the dynamics of the building. And as soon as the most negative forces left, the teaching climate improved so quickly, so dramatically. It was, it was staggering. And we should be clear real quick before somebody starts yelling at me. I love, love, love teachers. You couldn't pay me enough money to be in an elementary school classroom all day long. Um, but um, a system, and the system is kind of kooky for if you've never been in a school, and I hadn't since I left elementary school, I'd never been in elementary school, they're really, really weird places. And um, it's strange. You know, you have a lot of very disenfranchised kind of, um, you know, it's a primarily female environment, and they're kind of weird places. And so 
when things get screwy, they get really, really screwy really, really quick. So um, it was remarkable. When the negative forces left, it became really great. And I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I would put their education on par with any private school in this country. It is that good. We have aides now in our preschools with double endorsements, with master's degrees from Yale and MIT. Uh, we have nationally certified teachers. We have PhD stu- you know, teachers. It's, it's phenomenal. And I suspect Baltimore is pretty similar, that the caliber of teachers running around these days is phenomenal. Um, and I think if more people knew that, um, I, I think there would be a whole lot more confidence in the system. But one of the other reasons, though, before we leave academic, the academic piece about why our movement succeeded, I think, when other movements have failed, is that we believed Susan was a great educator. We believed she could run a school. Um, and she promised us, she promised if we got on this rickety boat with her, on this crazy, you know, glue gun airplane, she promised she would take our kids to eighth grade and we would get there. And she said, you know, everybody's going to go to Yale and Princeton. All all your kids are going to do all the stuff you want them to. They're just going to have a very interesting ride on the way. But we'll get there. We'll all get there if you trust me. But what we said to Susan is, okay, run a school, run it well, run it the way you see fit. We won't meddle and make your life impossible. But you don't have to be a community organizer. You don't have to be a fundraiser. You don't have to be a marketing whiz. You don't have to be a party planner. You don't have to be a decorator. You don't have to do any of that stuff. We'll do that. We will find experts to help you do that. Just run a school. And uh, the woman delivered, and she delivered on spades. And Susan, for all her gifts, is not, you know, Joan of Arc. She is not the only great principal in the United States. There are so many principals who are dynamic and visionary and energetic and would do uh, tremendous things if only an army would show up and be loyal servants to help them create their vision. Um, The marketing team was a really interesting team. Um, And all of these teams we knew had to succeed concurrently to make it work, right? So the marketing team was really interesting. Um, Apparently, you can rebrand and reposition a failing Chicago public school as easily as breakfast cereal. Who knew? You can. Um, Yes, it is some smoke and mirrors. Uh, We relied on the glory days of Nettlehurst's 100-year-old history, and we pulled some stuff out. Um, We did a very aggressive... Um, an innovative marketing campaign. We sat down with people from Leo Burnett and Kraft and all kinds of marketing wizards, and we said, how do you do this? Tell us, tell us how you do it. And it's doable. Um, but it, it has to be strategic. And we were strategic down to the kind of font sizes we chose and the colors we used and the websites we made. And it was all very strategic to lure in a neighborhood. We knew no one would give Nettlehurst a second chance or a second look if they were put off by the marketing stuff. And so that mattered. And the publicity stuff mattered because where do people get their clues from? Where do they take their cues from? The media. And if the media only tells you about either 
school shootings and disasters on one hand, or that there are two or three golden places that are great, how is a normal parent supposed to know what to do? And in Chicago, you know, unless Chicago Magazine says you're okay, it's hard for normal people who have no idea about education to make decisions unless you're endorsed. So we really, really, really hustled on that front. And PR, you know, school stuff is not deep investigative journalism. If you don't feed your story to the media, if you don't create your own message, then that message will be created for you. So we spun it, and it was a lot of spin. And eventually, and this was really weird, um, the, the, I don't even want to call it a lie, but the half-truths and fabrications and smoke and mirrors gave way to reality so quickly then it was like, oh, look, we are living in the Golden Nettlehurst District. What? There's a Golden Nettlehurst District? Really? Yeah. You know? And now, no one sells a house in my district without saying it's in the guaranteed catchment zone of Nettlehurst. Like, this is a selling point now. Um, because we made this mythical concept up that it was great. So, yeah, you can do that, too. Um, Let's just talk about the fundraising team. Uh, We had a fundraising team on it, and we disbanded that team within the first four weeks of this movement. It became very painfully, tragically clear to us that no one wanted to give money to a failing Chicago public school. And none of the mommies in the park wanted to be shaken down either, because they were already investing with their sweat equity in a dream that was not even clear it was going to work. So the idea that we were going to cough over funds, too, was, like, laughable. So we, we uh, disbanded that, and we realized that was kind of silly. So we cold-called local merchants, and we just asked for, a, you know, a couple gallons of paint or a roll of carpeting, or we asked painters to paint and plumbers to plumb. Whatever anybody did, we needed it. I mean, one of the joys of needing everything is anything you get is perfect. Everything is great. And we became really expert dumpster divers, and um, you know we did this really with nothing for a long time. But when more neighborhood people started coming, we got some really sophisticated bears coming in the door. And one of our dads, Ted Ganchev, took it upon himself to figure out how this fundraising racket works. And it is a racket, and there are winners, and there are losers. And now that schools are being asked to self-finance, which is a, you know, a criminal, you know, problematic. We can talk about that, you know, another time. But so long as that seems to be the new way this game is working, then it behooves schools to figure out how this works and become their own financial advocates. Part of it is about money, and I'm not saying no to money. Money's good. But more important is creating deep, mutually beneficial partnerships So where I was walking around with an empty hat saying, Goldsucker, did you need those shoes? Because I'm going to make this great tree and I'm going to cover them in glitter and make a tree glitter thing, which is how I operated. Ted, in his infinite wisdom, learned that he has a handoff-ready proposal now, shovel-ready with PowerPoints, 20 different concepts. So if you are interested in nutrition if you are interested in childhood obesity, if you're interested in gardening or science or theater, this team is ready to go. 
great, we've got a proposal. We're, we're ready. We're ready to take it. And that was a radical sea change in how we saw fundraising. They have become so successful now. Uh, two, three years ago, we signed a uh, $210,000 partnership with the Chicago Blackhawks that we've translated into a um, brand-new fitness center, which is you know state-of-the-art with we and dance, dance, revolution, and all this great stuff. Uh, we won the U.S. Cellular Calling All Communities Challenge and translated that into a brand-new science lab. Uh, our largest capital campaign was to build an auditorium. And we just, uh, Nate Burkus, Oprah's designer, just redid our community kitchen. So all of that stuff is great, right? Um, but, but it's kind of problematic now because right now somebody can walk into our school and look at Nate's fabulous kitchen and it is delicious. Like I want to pull up a sleeping bag and cook breakfast there every morning because it's so yummy. Um, and think that somehow it's about the stuff, like the subway tiles and the stainless steel appliances and all of that stuff's great. But the kitchen, the open teaching kitchen that it replaced the one that we built out of dumpsters was just as valuable. And in fact, I kind of think it was more valuable in some ways because it was so um, created as such a labor of love. Not that I don't like Home Depot and Pottery Barn and Williams-Sonoma because I, I loved them too and the kitchen is beautiful. But the dumpster kitchen um, was just as charming and just as important. And it was because our principal shared our dream that cooking should be an integral part of a kid's experience and nutrition belonged in a school. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to read Green Eggs and Ham and then make it, and read Stone Soup and then make it? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be great if people went to the farmer's market and then everybody could come in and maybe cook something? Wouldn't that be cool? Right? So it's not about the stuff. It's not about the stuff. Money did not power the Nettlehurst Revolution. People powered it. Schools aren't anything more than an assembly of an adults trying to do right by kids. So anything that normal people bring to the table is good, good stuff, and it's not all about the money. The real question um, now, I suppose, is, is the Nettlehurst blueprint replicable? You know, we could walk away from this experience and it would be like ballroom dancing or some kind of urban lore. And people would have said, you mommies are great and you did a super job, but, and that would have been that. Or maybe we could turn our experience into something that would help other communities make their own transformation, which would be great. So I get two criticisms. We get two criticisms. Our experience gets two criticisms. The first one is about gentrification. And the argument goes something like this. Good schools are the inevitable byproduct of gentrification. Uh, the long and the short of it is you get enough rich white people in a room, uh, put them all in houses, and before you know it, like Pop Rocks, the school down the corner turns great. Um, and that's just not true. You look all across this country, and there is a great school on one corner, and then four blocks over, same housing stock, same everything, you've got a school that's a disaster on stilts. And the question is why? It's usually twofold. It's usually the principal's kind of a disaster or the neighborhood hasn't bought in. And it's usually both. 
But the stuff doesn't just happen, even in the most stable neighborhoods, even in advantaged neighborhoods. It doesn't just happen. Now, in neighborhoods that are less advantaged, will it take longer? Yes. Are there more barriers? Yes. Is it going to be harder? Of course. You know, we benefited from a lot of social capital in that park. You know, I'd be, you know, dumb to say we didn't. We were very lucky. There were a lot of things that, um, you know, a whole bunch of vectors came together to make this project work, and we were lucky about them. And we were also lucky about the social capital part in that we were entitled. We were entitled and arrogant to the extent that we believed the school was supposed to work for us. We believed our uh, elected representatives were supposed to deliver for us. We believed that the school, um, admin- school people downtown should talk to us if we wanted to go talk to them. Um, so when we, we didn't necessarily know which doors to knock on. We were, you know, eight moms in a diner. We were not terribly well-connected people. But we did know that we could probably seek out the right people who could help us find the right doors to knock on. And then we had the tenacity to knock on those doors. And when people said no, we had the audacity to only hear not yet. That's what we heard. They meant not, not the front door. You mean the side door, or you mean the window, or, or you're supposed to come back at 2 in the morning. That's what we heard. Or you're just supposed to bother us until we relent. That's what we heard. And so that is a certain amount of um, arrogance and social capital um, that, that made my park lucky and maybe not like every other park. But, you know, I've been on a book tour now for a year, and I have yet to meet a mom from any walk of life who does not want what's right for her kids, who would not walk through coals to provide a better life for her kid. I have yet to meet a parent who walks and drops their kid off at school and says, gosh, I hope my kid has a really terrible day today. I hope I failed my kid today. So I know that this is something that we all want. And to simply say that this doesn't can't be um, adopted wholesale perfectly for every neighborhood. This is not a one-size-fits-all model. Take what works, you know, leave what doesn't. If it works, super. I'm not claiming to have the answers to everybody's problems. Obviously, violence trumps every issue. If kids are in danger of getting shot, no one is hanging out for a quilting bee at 5 o'clock, right? I know this. We all know this. So... I'm not claiming to have all the answers for maybe the most disadvantaged communities. Thank God there's so many smart people who have invested their times and talents to try to make that work. But in between that and the highest, toniest neighborhoods, there's like everybody else. And there has to be an answer for public school for the rest of us. The second uh, criticism we get is, um, and I heard this in D.C., uh, when I was at this educational thing, which is funny because, like, I'm not an educator, so why am I there, right? And um, this uber-respected educational expert um, said in a room full of very, you know, important people, you know, I'm sure your school is great, and you mommies sound great, and that's all great, 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 great. 
But um, until this project is brought for, to scale, it really isn't germane to the public policy debate on education. And all I could stammer in this room full of experts was, um, gosh, you know, I, I thought mommies had already gone to scale. You know, like, I, I thought we'd scaled that problem already, you know? And ha- have you been to a sandbox lately? Do you have any idea the kind of parents who are sitting in sandboxes these days for eight hours or for 20 minutes? People, you know, women, and I shouldn't just say women. I get yelled at. Ted yells at me all the time for saying it's just a woman thing, but it's just a woman thing. You know, women are having children much later. Lots of people are educated. We've all had jobs. We have a tremendous amount of resources and education and expertise to bear. And um, for us, and this is the other side of it, when I say, like, I don't like kids that much, I really mean it. For me personally, this was an incredible um, opportunity for me because it was a great education for me. One of the secrets about child-rearing that, um, you know, they told us in the, in, in the 60s and the 70s, but we kind of forgot, is that, and Julia Roberts is to blame, actually. But, like, childbearing can be kind of tedious, you know? And alienating and lonely. And in a city, it can be even worse. So we in Chicago needed a barn raising just as much as anybody else. We wanted to connect with... Um, other people who shared our interests and our passions. And we all kind of felt that if we could just, you know, like have a drink and kind of like watch our kids play and figure this stuff out, that it would be a, you know, it would be a fun ride. So it was just as valuable to us, too, in terms of what, um, in terms of what we wanted. Um, at that same conference, you know, we always hear this stuff in D.C. and around the country, and... You know, it's like, wah, 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 change takes decades. You know, wah, 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 change is incremental. Change does not take decades. Change need not be incremental. This is not rocket science. This is elementary school. You know, I'm not an educator. I'm telling you, this is not complicated stuff. It really isn't. I mean, I don't know what they're doing all day. I, I don't want to do it. But the idea that a neighborhood school can work is not crazy. Neighborhood schools succeeded in this country for 100 years. Every single urban, uh, urban environment in this country is based on the neighborhood school model. So the idea that that model is inherently flawed... I have a very hard time wrapping my mind around that. I think part of the problem is we've been sold this bill of goods that we bought, right? That told us that the situation is beyond our control. I mean, right now, everybody thinks that education is so messed up that there isn't anything they possibly could do to fix it. And that's not true. There's just tons of stuff. But people don't know what's possible. So... Here's my dream of dreams. Right now, when Obama says, what can you do to help your country? Right now, what do we say? We say, like, I could buy a pyrus. Uh, I could plant a garden. 
I could volunteer in a soup kitchen. You know, I could do all this stuff. That's all good stuff, right? But people don't say, why, I could fix my neighborhood school. That's something I could do. I, I could do that. So Michelle Obama is, is not planting a garden on the White House lawn because she likes to garden. Well, I, I don't know that for sure, but she's from Chicago, so I don't think so. But she's doing it because an idea took hold. A very simple, simple idea took hold in the national consciousness that said, this is something that we all can do. And so my dream of dreams is that this gets this idea, this simple, old-school, nonpartisan, virtually free idea gets embedded in the national consciousness um, to the point that it's possible, right, to start a movement. And I think right now is that time. With uh, waiting for Superman and a new administration, um, people are talking about school reform in a way that is far more serious than they have done in decades, right? This is it. This is our window. I kind of think we have a few months maybe. And then I don't know what we'll be on to, whether it will be global warming or something else. Something else will capture the national attention. So we kind of have a short window, in a way, to pull out a revolution. Um, so I guess my hope would be, you know, look, buy, buy five books, put them in the hands of a young mother, put them in the hands of your alderman or your councilman or whatever they call them. Um, bring them to your principal um, and say, this is what we want to make. Not this exactly, but let's, let's work together. Hi, we're here and we want to help. How can we help you to bring about our shared vision for something great for all the kids that are in this building and all the kids in this community? Um, you know, I blog for the Huffington Post. Uh, you know, you can find me there and throw that out into cyberspace. Um, all of these links you can throw out into cyberspace. And if you can help me do that, I don't have an advance, I don't have a PR budget, you know, it's really just like kind of me. So if you can help with this revolution in that way, that would be enormously helpful. Um, the answer to waiting for Superman is that you are Superman. We are Superman. Like, this is it. It's not just that nobody's coming and we have to wait for Jeffrey Canada to come in with a chariot. We don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg with a, you know, $100 million or Oprah or even Cheryl Hines with a caravan of stuff. We don't need to wait for that stuff. We don't even need to wait for the giant garbage barge to self-correct. We don't need to wait for that stuff. We already have all the tools we need right now to do this kind of work. And if everybody just fixed what was in their own backyard, I think we could pull this off. And that would create real systemic change. And I know because I've seen it in Chicago, not just at my school, but at many, many schools. I've seen it across the country. And I've also seen it here in Baltimore. I've spent three days now talking to moms and activists and parents and principals and 
there are people here doing this kind of work. I mean, the Downtown Family Alliance, call them. Go on their website. Log on. Figure it out. But if all of these people who want it can connect, then there's the possibility that we could all pull this out. And if we pull this out, I really feel like we'd have something great to hang our hat on. Good evening. Um, Jackie, you are a hard act to follow. Um, believe it or not, I speak for a living, but I was telling Lori I actually hate public speaking. Um, so uh, given the introduction, I think I should sort of dial it down a bit because I feel a bit obnoxious. <laughs> um, so while I am a member of the school board, I think that given uh, Jackie's sharing her experience, that I should sort of just talk about my experience as um, a member of a Baltimore neighborhood and as a parent. Um, and then we sort of see what goes from there. I'm not the featured act here, so I will keep it short um, and allow you all to ask questions of our esteemed guest. So, um, so really it started with um, my deciding to buy a house um, in southeast Baltimore. Um, my husband and I buying a house in an area known as what was north of the park. Um, if you know anything about southeast Baltimore, um, there was a time in which um, um, you were said to live north of the park, which I guess it's one point was something like Skid Row, I'm not really certain. Um, but I love the house, we love the house, we decided to live there. Um, I have a three-month-old, my first child, whose name is Maya, by the way, great name. Um, and I decided to go to my neighborhood association meeting. Um, and the archdiocese was closing St. Elizabeth's, where my, uh, my husband went to school when, once he got kicked out of Fort Worthington. <laughs> I married that kid. Um, <laughs> who's now a school teacher and very good at what he does. <laughs> um, that's another matter. So, and they were talking about the fact that the Archdiocese was going to close St. Elizabeth's. Um, the Archdiocese didn't want the, um, the school to sort of um, fall into sort of nefarious hands, and they threw it to the Neighborhood Association to sort of decide what they wanted. Um, and so there was a conversation about, so let's form a committee to decide what we should do with the old St. Elizabeth's. And I signed up on this committee with my three-month-old. Um, and from there, we decided to form um, a community school. Um, um, so um, the story of the school was really a story about a neighborhood and parents. Um, and so what we decided to do was that we would form a founding group. Um, in our founding group, we invited everyone to be a founder, right? So we said, if you put in you know, 20 hours before this date, you can be a founder. Our founders were parents and people without parents. Um, who actually made our, uh, our final founders list. Um, and it was sort of an all-call. You know, we would sort of hold something like town hall meetings and say, you know, you know what is it that we want in a school? Um, you know, what should our relationship be to the other schools in southeast Baltimore? Um, we contacted principals of area schools to sort of get their sense. Um, they were all sort of um, lukewarm or at least open to the fact of, uh, to the possibility of our opening. One principal pushed back hard, <laughs> very, very hard, um, because he felt like um, his school was the neighborhood school, those were his parents, and he was going to fight for them. Um, and he did. So that's another story. Um, so um, we came together and we developed a recruitment strategy where we just sort of um, did sort of postcarding. We invited people to come in to just talk about, you know, what should the name of the school be? You know, what do we want? Who are we? Um, we live in an area that is ethnically, racially, culturally, and socioeconomically diverse. And we felt like that was important. Um, the, um, our decision to make a school had less to do with um, creating a school for 
um, the most vocal members of our community or the most vocal members of our neighborhood association and more to do with a school that sort of capitalized on what it meant to live in this particular area, um, particularly um, its relationship to the, um, the park that anchored everyone um, who lived um, in this neighborhood. Um, so we sort of um, came together in people's homes. Um, we met um, in the base- basements of people's homes. We met in the basement of the church. Uh, we met in restaurants when we could. And we sort of talked um, literally with sort of post-it papers about who we were as a community and what we wanted our school to look like. Um, so that's sort of how the journey began. Um, and um, it was not only sort of um, my first um, opportunity to get to know um, the community where I lived, but was an opportunity for me to create a social network um, of um, of neighbors and people from all walks of life who were just sort of interested in the community and what a school would mean coming together around a school for this particular community. Um, it's also a story of a neighborhood, quite frankly. I mean, if anyone knows anything about what it means to live north of a park, and I think uh, one or two people <laughs> clapped when I said the term north of the park, um, this was an area um, that was full of possibility but was considered by many vulnerable, and that's probably to put it lightly. Um, and, but we loved it. We loved the infrastructure. We loved the people. We loved the fact that there were people from, um, there were sort of large immigrant communities. Um, we loved the diversity. Um, and frankly, we just liked the proximate, proximity to bars, and we didn't have to sort of live too close to the bars. I mean, you know. And we were sort of interested in what it meant to live in close proximity to one another in row houses with marble steps. That's what we wanted. Um, and so sort of that's where the journey began. Um, so, um, so that sort of was the beginning of my experience. Um, what happened, I guess, fast forward now eight or nine years later, is now I live in the same community in the same little house with now three children, <laughs> um, two of which are school age, so they attend uh, public schools. Um, we now have um, an area, we live in an area of the city where um, just about all the schools, except for one, um, is thriving. Every single school. The traditional schools, the charter schools, the choice schools, um, particularly in the um, sort of the pre-K through eight. Um, and so when I sort of tell the story about um, my love affair with um, Baltimore City, um, I married a Baltimore native, um, and sort of my entry into the school and into sort of my neighborhood into the city, it sort of started with my walking down the street with my very small child deciding that I needed to talk to someone other than my husband um, and getting to know, I mean, meeting in a dusty building. And from there, you know, I met all kinds of neighbors um, and we formed a school. Um, so a couple of things that I just sort of wanted to touch upon. Um, um, so in terms of what I think that we were looking for or what parents look for in general um, um, is, I think, is first this notion of academics. Um, and I think that on the whole, Um, When we think about um, our commitments to schools and what it means for a school to work, um, we're talking about something more than simply test scores, even though test scores certainly tell us something. Um, And so there's always conversations about around what it means to to involve ourselves in a rigorous uh, curriculum. Um, Secondly, frankly, issues of safety. Right? And a lot of these issues of safety are perception, but some of them actually, frankly, aren't perception. And so just making sure that we, are, um, we understand ourselves as a school community that, in which all hands are on deck. So you know, where I live, if a kid is mis- misbehaving, it's not unusual for a neighbor who does not have a child in the school 
to pick up the phone and call any principal and let that principal know that, you know, we believe that a child from your school was misbehaving. There's even been a case where there was a mother on a stroller who held two kids in Patterson Park until the assistant principal could get there. Um, and so, and that's, what, and that's really what safety is. It's sort of living in a community where we're sort of committed to um, um, so nurturing, restorative, understanding that youth are going to be youth, not overreacting, but setting high expectations. Um, a sense of community. Um, and I mean, I think the sense of community was sort of the most important thing. Um, um, and finally, leadership. Right, so none of what we were able to do could have been done without sort of um, identifying and working with um, school leaders who are already in place, including leadership all the way at the top, particularly school leaders um, sort of within the context of the schoolhouse. Um, and, you know, I share my personal story because in the last four or five months, as I've sort of become um, a muckety buck, as it were, um, um, I sort of have a much more systemic, increasingly sort of bird's eye systemic view of schools. And that's actually not where um, I think that the meat and the heart of the matter is. Um, and so, I mean, I share that personal experience just to sort of give some context to um, sort of how I see um, reform, but also to say that um, what's happening. And what happened in Nettlehurst, while um, sort of wonderful, exciting, and inspiring, I mean, uh, Jackie said it correctly, it's happening in places in Baltimore, not simply in areas of southeast um, Baltimore, but we know in Charles Village, in Lauraville, um, there are areas um, that have great potential, greater Mondawmin, who are sort of finding opportunities for communities and parents to have conversations about what it means to be um, a school that thrives. Um, now, that is not to sort of sugarcoat, um, because um, those of us who know what it's like on the ground, I mean, there are very much issues of what it means to um, prepare students for, um, for work and life, um, what it means to confront issues of race and class. Um, and frankly, um, a lot of the reform movement has had to do with sort of starting um, in the elementary grades, which is important, but the challenges of middle school and high school um, I think sort of remain on the table. Um, so, you know, again, I recognize that I am not the featured act here. Um, you know, if I were giving um, a presentation on Machiavelli or Hobbes, I'd probably speak for two or three hours. Uh, <laughs> because then I would be uh, teaching and not public speaking. Um, but I have a master here. So um, I think that I will sort of wrap up my comments there. Um, but I will say that, you know, what I, my experience of Baltimore beyond my love affair with my husband, um, it actually coincided with my love, love affair with Baltimore and also the wonderful people who I met, many of, who went, many of whom went on to found the Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance, um, um, which is one of the sponsors of the program today. Uh, so I guess that's it for me, and I am the moderator I hear. What questions can we... Can either of us answer? Well, we'd both be very happy to answer questions. What's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of involved with charter schools, and one of the um, points of pride about charter schools, it's um, largely true of all the charter schools, that they're very intensely focused on engaging the parents and insisting as much as possible and appropriate that the parents are involved in the school. And as I'm listening to you, um, you kind of took a little bit of the wind out of my sails because I always thought of it that charter schools do parents. But what you're really saying is that it's parents that do great schools, be they charter schools or otherwise. So first of all, I just want to thank you for that 
rather obvious now that I reflect on it, thought. But when you talk about your social capital as an educated, uh, economically secure person, I'm presuming, um, and... More or less. <laughs> more or less. Uh, yeah. Uh, right, take a ticket on that one. Um, but the question is, you go to... Na- but if, if what... I just formulated as your message here is true, then you go to neighborhoods where they don't have that social capital. And the question is, you know, what have you seen or what thoughts do you have about engaging parents in neighborhoods that don't have a lot of educated people? And it's sort of a two-part question. If to the extent the answer is, well, you have people from the outside trying to help with that, or, you know, does that sort of raise issues of class and so forth? Well, I think, I think uh, quite rightly, issues of class and race are real. And they uh, filter into the equation regardless of where uh, this kind of reform work is happening. It's, you know, even in, in our experience, we had real, real issues, and they're tinderboxes that you have to navigate very carefully or your whole little movement will derail. Um, we pioneered a fee-for-service community school model, but the traditional community school model is intended for disadvantaged neighborhoods specifically. So the, the issue is engagement, and it's not a question, particularly in the traditional community school model, it's not about just enticing middle-class people to come to the table. It's about enticing people to come to the table. Um, so I think that what we find, sorry, um, is that parents will engage if um, stakeholders, leaders, mucky mucks um, appreciate their point of view, will listen to them and speak in terms that they understand. And that's no different. You know, I want you to speak in terms that I understand as a highly educated person, um, but the, my concerns for my ch- children are the same concerns that others have. Um, I think that often there is a systematic approach or a systemic problem in which people assume that parents um, are, because they seem apathetic, that they don't care. But a lot of it is just sort of learning how to do customer service, for lack of a better term, and to just engage them. I mean, smiling at a parent goes a long way. Knowing that when they walk into the office that you know their kid's name goes a long way. Um, asking them about their day. I mean, there's a sin- and all of this stuff happens, I think, within the context of the schoolhouse, right? I mean, um, I think that there's a lot that outside partners can do, particularly with um, uh, populations that have certain challenges, because outside partners can provide services and programs that our parents need um, so that they are able to, you know, voice their concerns and sort of, you know, they receive a fair hearing. So, Other, other questions? I have a question. I'm a, a mother of a four and a six year old and have been struggling with schools and so forth. And this whole idea of class and maybe expectations for what a school day looks like and what is a successful school, I think, can look different to different people. For example, in our city, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to move out of the neighborhood and, and move to a Roland Park district. I wouldn't be happy in Roland Park. And I guess when I'm wondering, you maybe don't understand what I mean by that, but... um, I get the drift. (laughs) But schools have become so driven in terms of academics that, you know, you mentioned the movie Waiting for Superman. There's another one that's probably not quite as popular, but um, Race to Nowhere, 
talking about homework and kind of just like our kids. And part of it is, and I found this in the school that we were a part of and I pulled my kids out, is that I don't feel like I have to worry about my kids learning to read and write and doing the academic things. They're going to make it. But kids who come from different neighborhoods or different sorry um, backgrounds, their parents are worried about this. So you know you want to you want to make sure that you you can get everything in and and um, they're not as concerned about play and sort of my four year old having homework every night. It was a concern of mine, but other people just wanted more homework. I don't know. You know, sense. I think. I think I come from a really different planet because, you know, I, I sometimes talk to, to educator types and, and you say, well, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what is the school philosophy here? And they say, we, we're, we're making our children college ready. It's like, gosh, when I looked at my five-year-old, I didn't say, boy, I hope he becomes college ready today. You know, I, by my lights, I would like my kids to get through elementary school with a sense of integrity. I would like them to come through elementary school with their soul intact. I would like them to be decent, happy people. I would like them to walk to school with a little song in their heart. Yes, I want them to read. I'd like them to learn fractions better than I do. I would like them to learn to spell words that I know. That would be great. But do I think that my elementary school has to deliver on every single front, including handwriting? No. I, but I think maybe my standards are kind of screwy. I don't know. You know, this is your standards aren't screwy. This is a difficult issue um, because um, I think that most parents are with you all the way. Now, what I would agree is that most parents probably don't want a lot of homework, particularly in the elementary school. But this question of sort of the basics and the fundamentals um, is a hard one. I think that now, since there seems to be um, a turning, there's been a turning point, I think, in our schools, or generally speaking, about sort of how it is that we teach students how to read and how to do basic math. Um, I think that the time is now for parents, frankly, to sort of push the questions about um, while reading and math are the basis of learning, I mean, really, um, there's sort of this whole language about educating the whole child, that that really can't be all there is. And whether or not you are a child who has been more prepared or less prepared, the fact of the matter is that you should know something about science, that you should know something about social studies, you should know something about the major languages of commerce that are going to be used in, um, you know, in the time to come and within their time. So I just think it's sort of... Schools are in a tough bind because what they are evaluated on by muckety-mucks like me tends to be quantitative scores, right, that test essentially two, three areas, perhaps three areas. Um, So that sort of is what they live and die on, but as parents, right, and as sort of a community, we recognize that there's so much more that's important than that. Um, so I don't, it's not an easy issue, but I would just say as a parent, you just have to keep pushing because, you know, if the, you know, my argument is always, um, and I'm speaking out of turn here, definitely speaking as parent and citizen, right? Um, if, you know, we've got reading and math down by third grade, let, put the dittos down, step, step away from the dittos, step away from the regimented one hour of math every day, right? I mean, it's, at some point, we need to move beyond that because really that's going to be what gets everyone to commit to the school because this is a school that can do math, that can do reading, that can do social studies, that can do gardening, that can do it all well in the context of a school day, and my child or one's child is not exhausted or doesn't like school because they're sitting at their desk 
an hour, two hours a day. So, Can I just say, though, I'm, I'm being a tiny bit facetious in that while I want their little darling souls preserved and this and that, Northwestern physicists are building prosthetic arms with our kids. And, uh, you know, I would put their education on par with every, any private school in the city. And if, uh, you know, we felt, uh, my husband and I felt like they were turning into turnips, you know, we'd pull them. So, you know, you have to have sort of like feel like they're being challenged, but my kids aren't the fastest running gazelles, but, you know, they're, they're set in the pack, so I feel good about it. What other questions can we answer? Yes. So shout loud. I'll shout loud. Uh, every school I know has been great for somebody and awful for somebody else. Uh, I don't know any school that is the right school for everybody who's gone to it. And when you say that, you know, you're in favor of the neighborhood school as a concept, that scares the willies out of me. Gosh, why? Why? Because I don't know too many people who learn the same way. And when I look at schools that are choosy, I see that they choose not just on, you know, whether they know you or whether they think you're rich or something, but whether they think you're going to learn the way they teach. Because we now seem to understand that different kids learn in different ways and are going to grow up to be different kinds of adults. And I'm afraid, what you're doing sounds great, but do we want a national model where people just sort of can't pull their child if it's not working, that's built around? I think it's a real triumph that we're getting beyond neighborhood schools. No, look, hey, look, schools that work are better than schools that don't, you know? And, And any school that works is great and I'm you know parents are clamoring for choice and they're responding with more choice and you know that's super my my only problem with charters and selective enrollment schools is just simply that whenever any one of those schools opens its doors inevitably it blows out the neighborhood in that the people who want to go to school there who live across the street can't go there and so to have kids whose futures are determined by lottery balls strikes me as kind of noxious. That said, you are quite right. Public school is not for the faint-hearted. You know, it w- my husband has this, you know, would say, um, you know, you can take spam and gussy it up and call it pate, but if at the end of the day it's still spam, we're not eating. Um, and he doesn't care how much work my little girlfriends and I have done to the joint. I can tell you it is a rough country pate. Um, it will require a great big bottle of wine, maybe a couple and a salad, but we all feel like if we're holding hands together and, you know, somebody brought the wine, like, okay, we can make this work. Yeah, this is doable. But it's not for everybody. I don't begrudge people rejecting an inferior product. I don't begrudge people going to private schools. Um, you know, if you want to homeschool, you know, that would be like a whole bottle of Xanax for me. But okay, if that works for you, super. We started... Um, Susan Curlin would tell you you just need one other kid besides your kid. Like two kids, you'll be fine. Like one natural peer, you'll be fine. Uh, We thought we needed enough to reach a tipping point somewhere in roughly at least half a class. Like in a classroom of 30 kids, we felt like we had to come up maybe with 20 kids um, to make it work. Um, I was talking to reformers here about a new site that I think would be really useful maybe, and maybe somebody could tinker around with this idea, but... Uh, Groupon's, uh, the you know the company Groupon, their social action arm is called the Point, and the Point works on social leveraging and tipping points. 
And the idea is, what if we could create campaigns that basically said, um, and it can all be kind of anonymous, that basically the idea is, if, if this whole room worked at a factory and we were going to go on strike, no one would want to be the only idiot to say, I want to strike, right? But if we all could kind of like anonymously say, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, and then boom, when we reach the tipping point enough to strike, then it went public, right? That's the concept of the tipping point, of the point. So, and it works for social action things, and it also works for finance campaigns and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe we could create that kind of thing with schools, too, where how many neighbors are in? Are you in? How old is your kid? And if you're in, put your name here. Nothing's going public until we have enough people that we decided as a community sort of seems safe. And everybody's thing of feeling safe is different. Everybody comes to this equation with their own bag of tricks and their own U-Haul and even what people say publicly that they want and that they, you know, they're okay with when push comes to shove people have very different conversations at home as soon as it's about their kids you know, now the whole conversation is really, really screwy and there are lots of fights and lots of tears and it's not easy stuff when suddenly you're talking about your family so this notion of making people comfortable and feeling comfortable moving in a pack makes me think about what kinds of stuff in social media land could help bring that kind of security to young fledgling movements. Because if we knew in this room that we could all move together, you could fill this room and fill it you know, with tinfoil and turn the TV on, and I think we would pull out a decent elementary school if this room had to pull it out. But I think we have room for just one more question. Last question, guy in the back. Could you tell me how you and the other members of your bombing group mitigated conflicts that you might have had with the principal over what constituted quality education? Because you, you, for example, said you don't have an educational background, um, but I'll let you know. I'm the principal of a public school. (laughs) (laughs) We're a reasonably high-performing public school, and I'm sure for some people in the room, this would be your cup of tea, but if you don't want your four-year-old having any homework, we're probably not. And so, like, we might not be your community. I'm okay with that because there's an awesome charter school around the corner where it's totally different. And so I would say choose that or choose us. But was there a point at any time where you or your group had a conflict with Susan? You know, we had, we had tons of conflicts. Like, I don't want anybody to leave here with the notion that this was all lollipops and sunshine, unicorns. and you know, No, like, there were a lot of heartaches and tears and fights. At one point, she even banned us. She said, like, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you girls. I don't want you painting anything. I want you to get out of here because my school is going to break. And we went home. And, uh, you know, like, maybe within seven days, six days, we came back. And we said, we can't do this with an arm tied behind our back. We can't. We're on too tight a time frame. So either you're going to have to like cave and let us back in or whatever. And she said, then fine, stay out of that hallway. I want you leaving that person alone and that person alone and that person alone because I can't take that anymore. But there was that level of honesty with us that she talked to us as if we were her kids, you know? And we knew we were like on the, on the in as opposed to getting weird blowback or stuff. When we challenged her on stuff that was education-related, she made it really clear that we didn't know what we were talking about. You know, she would say, Jackie, you know, you, you think that all of the aides have to be these little Yale, little dopey sorority girls. Every kid doesn't need that. What, what? 
that's silly. You're just saying that because that's what you want. You want your babysitter there. That's not the babysitter for half the class. Stop that. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Trust me. We don't need a gifted program. Gifted programs are dumb. All kids can learn from differentiated instruction. No, I'm not going to put cameras in the classroom, girls. You're just going to have to trust me that we're not putting them in veal huts all day. You know? But there was this level of honesty about it, you know? So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to... um... So thank you very much for braving the sleet and the snow. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Shanisha. And thank all of you for coming. I need to thank the, uh, our, other, our co-sponsors, the Pratt, the uh, Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance, and our friends at, uh, at Healthy Neighborhoods. We hope you enjoyed the evening. Thanks. Good night. Thank you.